as you're looking at your Bibles, I'm going to go ahead and tell you that this morning's message is going to be a little bit different. You know that usually what we'll do is we'll look through a passage, and I'll give you uh, maybe three or four points to really kind of go through the, the sermon with. But um, what I want to do this morning is I'm just going to give you one point, and we're going to get there in a little bit. It's not super profound, but I hope that it's super memorable and that God will use it in your heart. We're going to be in Acts chapter 8 this morning. Um, so if you want to, you can go ahead and open up your Bible. At, oh, man, I left that book in my backpack. That's okay. We don't need it. All right. I had a book I was going to show you this morning, but we'll get there later. All right. You guys will know it. As we're looking at this morning, though, have you ever been in a time when you felt like things were going terribly wrong and you just didn't want to talk to anybody? Have you guys ever had that? Now, some of you guys are introverts, and so you just don't want to talk to anybody ever anyway. Um, I know that that's a caricature. It's not true. But some of you would really rather go a whole day without having to talk to anybody. I'm not that way. Like we talked about last week, I talk entirely too much, right? And so there was a season, though, in our life where I really didn't want to talk to anybody. I was in a bad mood. In fact, you know, because I like to talk so much, I really like flying by myself because that usually means that I sit next to somebody who's a captive audience for the next however many hours we are. I know they're not going to dig through the window no matter how badly they want to. And so if, as, as long as, if you're ever sitting next to me on a plane, if you can get the earbuds in before I get started, then you're good. But otherwise, I'm going to jump in and we're going to talk the whole way. Well, there was a season in our life when I just really didn't feel like talking. We had a ministry that we were a part of, and that ministry, uh, that opportunity for us in ministry was closing down. We knew we were only a few weeks away from a transition. Yeah, that would be it. Thanks, Mike. Go ahead and bring it down here. This is why Mike is such a great deacon, all right? He knows my head and my thoughts. I mean, it's so good. As we were going through this, though, we were in a transition that was getting ready to cause me to feel like a failure caused us to move cross-country without a plan and move back in with my mom and dad. I was not in the mood to talk to anybody. It was one of the hardest seasons for our marriage. And I had an event that I was supposed to go to that caused me to fly down to Florida from where we were living, and, and I didn't want to talk to anybody. I got there, and the event was something that should have been fun, but I had a real hard time getting into it because I just was in such a funk. The weekend had been awkward. There were some things that I just didn't enjoy, and I had an early flight that Sunday to come back home, and I thought, great. (laughs) It's an early flight. Nobody's going to want to talk, right? My goal was to get on the plane and just sit there and zone out and get home. I didn't really want to get home because I knew what was waiting, but I wanted to be back with Samantha. I didn't want to be where I was. I was just miserable. And I sit down on a plane, and this is no offense to anybody who has this particular passion, but the lady that sits down next to me is a horse lady, okay? Now, if you've ever known folks who are into horses, they like to talk about horses. She had flown to Florida from the Midwest to go to a horse show. I didn't even know that you would do that, but apparently she did. It was like 6 o'clock in the morning. I didn't want to talk to anybody. And this lady starts talking about her horse show. I don't care. (laughs) I just don't. Now, I'm not as bad. Most of the time, I'll talk with you about anything. I'm fascinated to learn about things. But that morning, no, I just was not in the mood. So then she asks, what do I do? I said, well, I'm, I'm a pastor on staff at a church. And she says, well, 
you know, I've got some friends who are Jewish. What's the deal with the Jews? So all of a sudden, I had to realize something. I didn't want to talk to anybody. But God had put me next to somebody who needed to hear. I would love to have a transcript of what I said over the next 20 or 30 minutes. But God took over. And I was able to sit with this lady, and I started with Abraham. I was able to trace through the history of the Old Testament and point how God had been making a promise to his people that he would send somebody to deliver, and that that person was Jesus. And I was able to share the gospel with this lady when I didn't want to talk to anybody. Now, I'd love to tell you that the end of the story was that she prayed to receive Christ there on that plane. She, she didn't, but here's what she did say. I'm the administrative assistant to the provost of a large university in the Midwest. Now, keep in mind, this is like 2009. One of the big hot-button issues in 2009 was fetal stem cell research and the idea that we would take aborted fetuses and we would use the tissue from the aborted fetuses for additional research. Now, at that point, the pro-life movement was vehemently speaking out against the atrocity of abortion and fetal stem cell research. She said, our university is the leading university in the country for fetal stem cell research. She was the administrative assistant to the provost of this university. And I was able to sit there and say, so now do you see? Now do you see why we care? Now do you see why we believe if every human life was created by God with intrinsic value and dignity and worth and a plan and a purpose to be related to him, now do you see why Christians get so upset about the fact that we're taking those lives? She says, yeah, I do. I gave her my email address and never heard back from her again. I have no idea what God did. I didn't want to talk that morning. God had other plans. Have you ever had a time like that, though, where you didn't want to talk? Something was hard, something hurt, and the last thing you wanted to do was tell anybody about Jesus? Here's what I want to challenge you with this morning as we look at God's Word together. Open up to Acts chapter 8 if you haven't already. Here's the challenge we're going to see from the early church. It's simply this phrase, preach Christ out of your pain. Preach Christ out of your pain. Now, the the book that I was going to remind you guys of is this particular one. It's one of my favorites. Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day. Now, have you guys ever read this book? If you've never read the book, it's about a main character. He's a young man named Alexander, and I'll just read you the first little section to give you an idea of Alexander's kind of day. I went to sleep with gum in my mouth, and now there's gum in my hair, and when I got out of bed this morning, I tripped on the skateboard, and by mistake, I dropped my sweater in the sink while the water was running, and I could tell that it was going to be a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. At breakfast, Anthony found a Corvette Stingray car kit in his breakfast cereal box, and Nick found a junior undercover agent code ring in his breakfast cereal box, but in my breakfast cereal box, all I found was breakfast cereal. I think I'll move to Australia. Now, the day goes on. I won't bother to read you the whole story. It's a good one. But have you ever had a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day that caused you to want to move to Australia? I just want to go anywhere else. I just want to do anything besides this. I don't care what it costs. 
I don't care. Yeah. For some of you guys may remember the movie, The Truman Show. If you remember The Truman Show, his whole point was he wanted to go to Fiji because it was the farthest you could go from here before you started coming back. Some of you guys may have had that moment. What if I told you that those days when you're most tempted to turn to pornography or to an inappropriate relationship or to food or to whatever you do, just to Netflix yourself into a coma before you go to bed, whatever those days are that would cause you to run to things and run away from the pain, that in those moments are the very times when God would call you to preach Christ out of your pain. Now, that's a big statement, so how can I back that up? Well, that's what we're going to see the early church doing here this morning. I want to just flesh this idea out for you as we look through God's word of what it looks like to preach Christ out of our pain. By the way, when we're talking preach, I'm not saying that you're going to set up a soapbox on the street corner and start yelling at people as they go by. What, when we talk about preach, what we're talking about is proclaiming who Christ is. Yes, it sometimes is a loud thing. This is not just kind of hinting at it, but being bold and open and honest about who Jesus is and that God's calling us to do that even in and out of of the most difficult pains that we can imagine. Now, again, let's try to explain that from Scripture. Start with me here. We're just going to read the first eight verses of Acts chapter 8. We'll we'll go back and explain all these things. So if, if this stuff isn't making sense, it's okay. We'll get there. Saul agreed with putting him to death. On that day, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. Devout men buried Stephen and mourned deeply over him. Saul, however, was ravaging the church. He would enter house after house, drag off men and women, and put them in prison. So those who were scattered went on their way preaching the word. You see that? Those who were scattered went on their way preaching the word. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah to them. The crowds were all paying attention to what Philip saw as they listened and saw the signs he was performing. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was great joy in the city. Now, isn't this interesting? It's something we're going to draw out as we go through. The early church was in pain. And yet, as they preached through their pain, God brought great joy to those around them. So let's kind of explain this a little bit more as we go back. Let's take a closer look at why why would I say that the early church was in pain? Well, go back with me at verse 1. As we do this, look here. It says, Saul agreed with putting him to death. Now, back up here, a little bit of history. Remember, Saul is the guy that we're going to later know as Paul. Now, remember, God did not change Saul's name to Paul. Paul was his name all the time. He was Saul when he was around the Jews, but when he started working among the Gentiles on the first missionary journey, they started to refer to him as Paul. It's the difference between like Sean and John and Juan, right? Those are all the same name, just in Irish or Gaelic, in English and in Spanish, right? So so you've got the same kind of idea. Saul and Paul are just depending on whether he's talking about the Jews and primarily witnessing to them, or when he's going on the Gentile mission, he starts being known as the Apostle Paul. Now, if you remember, we were introduced to him last chapter as the guy who held everybody's jackets so that they could kill Stephen. Stephen is the him that's being referred to in verse 1. He's the guy that had stood up boldly, and although he had built bridges, he had done so to point people to Christ, showing that Jesus was in charge and they were not. They got mad about it, and they killed him. And Saul was the guy who was holding their coats so that he could kill, they could kill Stephen. 
Now, Saul's going to be a huge character in the book, and what Luke's doing is sprinkling in little references to him throughout so that we're kind of getting the the pump primed to be ready to to follow what God's going to do with him. But now, as we're looking at this, think about what's going on emotionally for the apostles and the early church. We read Scripture, and sometimes the description is so sterilized, it, it just kind of says it as it is, that it's easy for us to forget what's going on here. Who was Stephen? Well, remember, out of the 5,000-plus the men who are now a part of the church in Jerusalem, he was one of the seven guys that the church recognized God working so mightily in that they put him in charge of the feeding ministry for the widows. So here is a guy that everybody knows, everybody respects, everybody looks up to this guy as a solid, wise servant of the Lord, and now he's dead. He's dead. Not just like died of a heart attack dead. Died brutally at the hands of an angry mob. For them, this would have been earth-shattering. Stephen's death at the hands of the rioting mob was just the beginning of the series of persecutions that was leveled against the early church. But see, here's the thing. Stephen is the first person to actually die for Jesus. He was a friend to many. He was a respected leader, and he's also the first Christian to die. Why is that important? Well, because Jesus had talked about persecutions, and Jesus had prepared them that these things were going to happen. But now, all of a sudden, this is for real. Like, I mean, he's really dead. And the only reason he's dead is because he stood up for Jesus. All of a sudden, they're shaken, right? I mean, wouldn't you be? We're not invincible anymore. Some of you guys may remember that first person that you knew who was close to you who passed away. And you remember it shaking you to the core, saying all of a sudden, like, I could actually die. Or that first time that you had that accident that got a little too close. It unsettles you. The early church is mourning the loss of Stephen. But this persecution caused the Christians to flee Jerusalem en masse. It said on that day, a severe persecution broke out against them. Where did they go, by the way? It says that there, excuse me, down in verse Verse 2 says, all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. Now, if you've been with us or if you're familiar with the book of Acts, this ought to kind of raise a little bit of a, a bell for you, right? You've got Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria all listed in the same verse. Where have we heard that before? Well, Jesus commissioned to them in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. If you go back to where we first looked at, he said this, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. See, this far in the book of Acts, everything has been happening in Jerusalem. It's all been centered around the apostles and what's been taking place in Jerusalem. And then we had things shifting a little bit away from the apostles with Stephen's story, but it's still everything's happening in Jerusalem. But what did he say that he was going to do? He said, you guys are going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. So what's happening in the middle of this severe persecution that's scattering people throughout the region? Is God sitting up in heaven going, oh, man, I had no idea that was going to happen. I had no idea that this was going to take place. No, this is exactly what God knew was going to take place. This is the the very pain that they're experiencing is what God's using to drive them out to fulfill the mission that he had given them. The good hand of God is guiding them through the terrible events of life. 
By the way, you and I don't have a good sense of what it's like to to move from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria. We don't don't have a good sense of this because, now, how many of you are Christiansburg or or kind of this area born and raised? Okay, I raised my hand with that. There's a handful of us here. Our whole family's here. Our whole life has been here, you know, for the most part. But we still live in a very mobile society. You just pick up and you move. You know, in fact, the majority of folks here weren't born in Christiansburg. When, When we just raised hands right here, you guys weren't born in this area. A lot of you guys have moved. That's just normal for us. It wasn't for them. In those days, you had a a family inheritance. It was a plot of land that had been in your family for generations. It's where you lived. It's what you did. And all of a sudden, if you stay there, you're going to die. So you get forced away from your family. You get forced away from your business. You get forced away from your home that's been in your family for generations. We have a hard time understanding that. But God was using this persecution of his people to accomplish his purpose. He knew this was coming, and he was working the entire time. Again, it's easy for us to gloss over this. Look back again at verses 1 through 3. Saul agreed with putting him to death, right? With killing Stephen. That's a big deal. On that day, a severe persecution, this is not hyperbole, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. So they're in fear of their life. Then verse 2, devout men buried Stephen and mourned deeply over him. Guys, don't read that quickly. Have you ever buried a friend? Ever buried somebody close to you? Especially if it's in some kind of difficult circumstance? These men were mourning over the loss of their best friend. One of the, the seven guys that was leading this part of the church at this point. Saul, however, was ravaging the church. Ravaging the church. Now, whatever picture comes to your mind when you hear the word ravaging, it's not likely a pretty one, right? It's the idea of some kind of predator ripping its prey to shreds. He was ravaging the church. How? Well, he would enter house after house and drag off men and women and throw them in prison. Like, do you get that? It's easy to read that, but think about it. If you're sitting at home, we've got a handful of houses on our street and several of the people there are church-going folks who we believe know the Lord and are walking with him. So can you imagine if sometime today that Christiansburg Police Department showed up at the door of my neighbor's house and started dragging her out and throwing her in prison? And then they were working their way down the street saying, are you a Christian? If so, dragging you off to prison. Like, do you get how big a deal this is? I've never experienced this kind of pain. To have a friend who's been murdered, to be forced from my own home, to run from my family, my business, my career, my everything, and leave all of that behind, or risk staying and getting drugged to prison. I cannot fathom this. But you know, I get gum in my hair or I slip on a skateboard and I'm ready to move to Australia, right? But what did the early church do? As they were going through all of this pain, can you imagine if Christiansburg and Montgomery County wasn't safe anymore? How would you react? 
I mean, I'd want to move to Australia. I'd want to get away from it. I'd, if I did move somewhere else, I'd want to be on the down low, right? Like, I don't want anybody to know that I'm a Christian because back in Jerusalem, when they found out that I was a Christian, they were ready to throw me in jail or kill me. I want to lay low for a while. I want to just kind of blend in a little bit. So as I'm going out to Judea, as I'm going out to Samaria, I'm not going to make many waves. But what did they do? Verse four. So those who were scattered went on their way preaching the word. They went on their way preaching the word. They were mourning an incredible loss. They were afraid for their lives. They had lost everything that was dear to them. And they preached Christ. How do you do that? How do you do that? Because for these folks who had seen Jesus raised from the dead or had believed in what they had been taught, they knew that nothing in life was worth comparing with who Jesus is. So for them, if it caused them to lose everything that they had, all of their safety, all of their relationships, all of their friendships, they couldn't help but point people to the hope that they had in Christ. See, guys, let me remind you of what we talk about every single week. The message of the gospel is that God loved you. God loved you so much that he would die in your place and be raised from the dead so that you could follow him and you could have hope and you could have joy and you could be a part of his kingdom, not just now, but forever. Don't lose sight of the beauty of this message, guys. We have a hope that nothing in life can ever fix. There's nothing in life that will ever give you the hope that Christ will. Nothing will ever satisfy like a genuine relationship with Jesus as your Savior and Lord. There's no status. There's no comfort. There's no anything that could ever compare with him. To the point that the early Christians, as they realized this, they went in the middle of their pain and they preached Christ wherever they went. Well, yeah, but Sean, I mean, you're, you know, you're been to seminary and all that stuff. You know, I mean, you, you know, you're, you're trained on how to do this kind of thing, right? So that's sure. If you got sent somewhere, yeah, but, but I'm just, I want to show you something. Go back again to verse one. Who was it who left Jerusalem? Severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. The 12 apostles, they stayed in Jerusalem. Who left? Everybody else. The deacons, the Sunday school teachers, the regular believers, right? The the lay people, as some people have referred to it the ones who weren't called vocationally to the ministry, they're the ones who took the gospel. You may have never realized this, but but when we pick up down here in verse five with Philip, a lot of people think this is talking about Philip who was the disciple and the apostle. I don't think it was because the apostles were still in Jerusalem. Now, see, there's another Philip that it talks about. If you you keep your finger in Acts eight, and if you've got a Bible, flip over to Acts chapter six, Verse 5, when they're setting aside a group of men to lead the church, what are their names? Verse 5, 
proposal pleased them, so they chose Stephen. Well, we've already talked about Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip. And then he goes on with a list of other names. Well, chapter 6 and 7 talks about Stephen. The next time we see somebody mentioned, who is it? It's Philip. Now, this isn't Philip the apostle. This is Philip the deacon. This is Philip the regular old guy. And you know what? Where does he go? Samaria. Now, Samaria is significant for us, although a lot of times we miss it. In the mind of an Orthodox Jew, the Samaritans were half-breeds. You want to talk about racism? The Jews hated the Samaritans so badly that it was not uncommon for them to add extra days onto their journey by going across the Jordan River and around to go up to Galilee instead of going straight through Samaria. Guys, we're talking like walking, right? They hated the Samaritans so badly they would add an extra day or two to their journey to walk all the way around them so they didn't ever have to encounter them. So what do we find? A deacon is the first person to cross racial lines with the gospel. Not only that, as we keep going, we're going to see he's also the one who takes the gospel to the Ethiopian eunuch. This is a a guy from Ethiopia, the first believer that we know of on the continent of Africa, and it's a deacon who leads him to Christ, not the pastor. You see it? So when I'm saying preach Christ from your pain, I'm not talking about have your friends come hear me preach, although that's fine. Invite folks to church. They're going to hear the gospel when they get here. What I'm saying is you, in your situation with the pain you're facing, have the opportunity to proclaim who Jesus is to the people around you that I will never see. We talked about that some last week, didn't we? I think it is worth us noting the fact that it, It isn't the apostles. But as the gospel first leaves Jerusalem, it's through the ordinary church members. I told you guys last week, I'm just one guy. I'm striving and asking God to give me more opportunities to share the gospel through my way of life, through the neighbors that I have that don't know Jesus, and through other people that I'm coming into contact with. But I can't be in your workplace. I'm not sitting in the doctor's office with you. I'm not in the bank with you. I'm not at school with you. I'm not in your dorm. I'm not in your classes. I'm not there. I'm not walking the halls of your school. But you know what? You are. God's put you right there. Yeah, but Sean, if you just knew what was going on, I don't want to talk to anybody. If you knew how hard life was, I can't. The early church did the regular believers from the church took the gospel to the ends of the world. Why? Because they were so madly in love with Jesus. They couldn't help it. Now look at what God did. As as Philip went out and in the power of the Holy Spirit began preaching and teaching there in Samaria, look at chapter chapter 8, verse 5. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah to them. He didn't duck, he didn't cover, he didn't cower, he didn't try to blend in. He went and he proclaimed the gospel to them. The crowds were all paying attention to what Philip said, and as they listened and saw the signs he was performing, for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was great joy in the city. 
Do you see the juxtaposition here between the first three verses and the last five? The early church was in pain. They were hurting. They were afraid. And yet God is so good and so big that as they preached Christ from their pain, it brought joy to a lost and dying world. What if the reason God's allowing you to face what you're facing is so that you'll be sitting in a doctor's office with a nurse who needs to know about Jesus? What if the reason that that charge got messed up on your bank account was so that in your frustration, instead of chewing out the teller who really had nothing to do with it, or the branch manager you have to sit down with to try to get the account straightened out, you can sit down and say, man, I sure am glad that my hope is not in my finances because, you know, Jesus loves me so much that I know I've got a a future and a hope with him that's secure. What if that's what God's doing through? What if in the midst of the relationship pain that you're dealing with, instead of just numbing it with Netflix, maybe God's calling you to lean into that. And as your friends say, how are things going? For you to sit there and say, man, this is really hard, but I'm so thankful that I've got a God who's going through it with me. See, this is the biblical pattern of what God does, by the way. Think about how God's always worked through pain throughout Scripture. You've got Abraham and Sarah who wanted to have a baby for so long And then God showed himself able to work miracles by giving them a child in their old age. Remember Moses we talked about last week? Remember the people rejected Moses and so he had to spend 40 years wandering around on the backside of the desert? You know what God knew? He was going to spend the next 40 years wandering around on the backside of that same desert. So God had been preparing him that entire time for what was going to take place in leading the people of Israel out. He'd had preparation on how to lead people as he grew up in the palace in Egypt. And then as he led God's people out, he was back right in that same wilderness, wandering around, leading the people for the next 40 years as they ended up walking with God. See, God doesn't waste anything. Daniel was pulled from his homeland while he was a teenager, yet God used his exile to deliver messages to some of the greatest kings in history. But you know, ultimately, we see how the Son of God Jesus, God the Son, left the comfort of heaven that he rightfully deserved, came to earth, walked around with us, took our pain, took our sin, died in our place, and was raised from the dead. Nobody had it worse than Jesus, okay? There's never been a person more misunderstood or mistreated in all of human history than Jesus. And yet he spent the entire time proclaiming the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the one he has sent. Are you willing to preach Christ from your pain? Now, as we go through this, could it be that your unwillingness to leave your comfort zone is keeping God from using you to spread his kingdom around the world? We are a comfortable people. For me, it's actually about two degrees too warm in here today, right? When it got hot last week, my air conditioning in my car wasn't as cold as I wanted it to be. So I got a can of refrigerant and refilled the refrigerant in my car because I wanted it cooler. We are a people of comfort. Could it be that God's calling you to do something crazy 
to do something uncomfortable, that God may even be orchestrating a job loss or a relationship falling apart or something like that, that God's doing that to push you out of your comfort zone so that you will go on mission with him. Maybe it's not overseas, but maybe he's still calling you to be that weirdo that talks to your neighbor about Christ, right? Guys, listen, I had the privilege of sharing the gospel with somebody on Friday, and it was hard, and it was weird, and it was an awkward conversation, but you know what? I'm praying for God to do great things through what we shared that day. Are you willing to be that weirdo? Are you willing to have your coworkers think you're a Jesus freak? Listen, preach Christ out of your pain, because that's when God does his greatest work. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul figured that out. Paul had had some incredible revelations where he had seen things that he wasn't allowed to talk about. That's what he's referencing at the very beginning of this passage. He said, especially because of the extraordinary revelations. Therefore, so that I would not exalt myself, this is Paul talking, a thorn in the flesh was given to me. Now, pause real quick. We don't know exactly what this was. Some have said it was blindness or a physical impairment that came from all of the times he had been beaten and left half dead. Some have said that it was a a mental health struggle or some kind of spiritual issue. We, We don't know exactly what it was, but it was enough that the Apostle Paul, who was a man's man, if there ever was a man's man, hated it. He said, it was a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to torment me so that I would not exalt myself. Concerning this, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it would leave me. Now, when Paul says that, those are not hat tip prayers of, oh God, could you make this go away? Like this is on his face, crying out, begging God, please deliver me from this so that I can keep doing what you've called me to do. This hurts and it's painful and I don't understand it. And here's God's response. But he, God, said to me, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is perfected in weakness. Therefore, I will most gladly boast all the more about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may reside in me. He said, I'm gonna brag about being weak. So I take pleasure. Now, this is not some weird like sadomasochistic thing. I take pleasure in weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, and in difficulties for the sake of Christ. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Paul didn't go out and intentionally look for painful things, but he said, when I see these painful things happening, I buckle up and know this is going to be good because God's power is demonstrated in my weakness, in my battle with cancer, in my struggles, in my pains. That's when he's displayed the greatest. Is that how you look at your pain? Nobody can blame Philip's success on how well he was known in Samaria or how many good connections he had there. When God worked through Philip in Samaria, it was after Philip moved there while he was fleeing for his life. See, Philip was dying to himself, and that resulted in life for the people in Samaria. We've been talking about this on Wednesday nights as we've been looking through 2 Corinthians 4 and 5 during our prayer meeting. But Paul wrote this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, talking about the glory of God. He said, we have this treasure, the, the glory of God, this treasure in clay jars so that this extraordinary power may be from God and not from us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not abandoned. We are struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry the death of Jesus in our body so that the life of Jesus may be displayed in our body. 
By the way, interesting thing about that word death of Jesus. There's two different words for death in Greek. One is just kind of death dead. The other one that he uses here is the word from which we get the word necrotic. Okay? If you're not familiar with that, do not Google it. You will regret it. Necrotic flesh is flesh that is dying. It's gross. It stinks. It's hideous. That's the term that Paul used to talk about caring about the death of Jesus in our body. Why? So that others could live. Is that your perspective on life? God, if you kill me, as long as somebody else comes to know Jesus, it's worth it. Paul talks about it in other places. He talks about the Jews and how badly he wishes that the Jews would get saved. And he actually says, I wish that I was accursed and separated from God for all eternity if it would mean the salvation of the Jews. Is that your perspective on life? Or are you just trying to stay comfortable and maybe tell people Jesus along the way? Or are you willing to say, God, if you kill me, if you put me through torture, if you take everything that I have away, I'm going to preach you in the middle of my pain because you're worth it. Why? Why would we do that? Because, guys, here's the thing. What's the worst thing you could do to me today? Kill me? Awesome. I get to go be with Jesus. Like, there is nothing you can do to me today that will hurt me for anything. Okay, let's say that you did something terrible to my family, and I had to live with that for the rest of my life. You know what? I'm 38 years old. I got maybe another 38 years in me, although if I keep preaching like this, I may die of an aneurysm before that. Okay? But if I have to live with that for the next 38 years, yes, that would be horrible, and it would be painful to go through life that way. But you know what? As soon as my eyes close in death, they open in the presence of God who makes every single bit of this worth it so I can preach out of my pain right now you can preach out of your pain right now and that's what God's calling you to do Sean if you only knew I don't know but I do know that Jesus went through more pain than you could ever imagine and he did it for you and he did it for your nurse at your doctor's office. And he did it for your neighbor and for the teller and for your professor and for your roommate and for everybody that you're going to come into contact with. And they need you to preach Jesus from your pain. See, here's how this works. You share about Jesus and how he's working to the nurse at the doctor's office. And I'm not saying that she's going to fall down right there and pray to receive Christ, but then she goes to pick up her car from the mechanic and turns out the mechanic's a believer and he says something about how, yeah, you know, I was going to do this, but I, I wanted to make sure that it was fair and honest because Jesus has saved me and I want to make sure I do things with integrity. Then her son's best friend's mom tells her about Jesus and what God's doing through the church. And that creates a hunger in her to find out more about who this Jesus is. And then she gets gloriously saved and finally finds a joy that nothing in life can ever take away. Then she takes that joy with her back to the doctor's office where the doctor that she works with notices the difference, difference in her and hears from her about what Jesus has done. And then he gets saved and the cycle continues so that there's much joy in the city as we preach Christ out of our pain. Can God still do that? Absolutely. Absolutely. So, are you willing to take the challenge 
to join with the early church and preach Christ out of your pain. Now, you may be sitting there this morning and say, well, Sean, to to be honest, I, I really am not in a painful situation right now. I mean, truth be told, for me, we're in a great place. We're seeing God do some great things as a family. We've got things we're looking forward to. You know, it, it's a good season for us. Now, there are things that we wish were different, of course. So then, if you're not in a painful situation right now, you have even less than no excuses. If God calls us to preach out of our pain, then we have no excuse for not preaching in our comfort. If even the death of a close friend, losing my family, losing my home, losing my business, if even that is enough, not enough for God to say, you know what, why don't you just take a little bit of time on the sidelines here, just kind of regroup for a second. Then there's nothing that would stop us. So in our comfort, in our pain, wherever we are, preach Christ. I want to challenge you this morning. Go ahead and close your eyes and bow your head. By the way, if you're, if you're not familiar with church stuff, we don't, we don't do this because we're not going to do anything weird to you or anything like that. We're, we're doing this because it gives us an opportunity to kind of quiet ourselves. And, and as we close our eyes and we bow our heads, it just gives us a, a minute to kind of cut out some of the distraction and just take some time to focus on what we're hearing from God and what he's saying. So there with your head bowed and your eyes closed, let me challenge you about this. First off, have you ever surrendered to the God we've been talking about this morning? The God who loved you so much that he would die in your place and be raised from the dead so that you could have new life. If not, then that's the challenge for you today is to surrender to him and say, God, I know this may be hard, but you sound like you're really awesome. And so I want to turn from following what myself and what I could do to turn to following you. But if you're here today and you need to make that decision, I'd love to talk with you. Just a minute, I'll invite you to come down here and we can, we can talk about it. You can make that decision wherever you are. Even if you're at home right now watching this online, you can make that decision to follow Christ. Just tell him, God, I, I've sinned, I've messed up. I need you. I want to follow you. Where is the area of pain that that you've been resenting, you've been worried about, you've been frustrated about? What would it look like for you to preach Christ from that pain? Step back for just a second from it and get some detachment. Look at it from, from a little bit of a bird's eye perspective. Who's involved in this situation that needs to hear about Jesus from you? If you're not in a painful situation right now, would you ask God, and this may be a dangerous prayer to pray, but God, would you do whatever it takes to put me wherever you want me to be to be able to preach Jesus? You willing to pray that this morning? Make it hard, guys. It may be really bad. But God is so good, he can make it worth it. I want to give you a minute just to respond to God where you are, just to take some time. I'm going to pray for us, and then when I'm done praying, I want you just to continue to respond with your head bowed and your eyes closed, do business with God, and then I'll close this out. If you need to talk to me, I'm down front. I would love to talk with you about it. Father, we thank you that you're better than we could ever begin to imagine. You're more powerful, you're more beautiful, you're more majestic. 
than anything we could ever begin to hold on to. Thank you for these early believers who didn't have all of the history of faith that we've got, who didn't have all the books and the commentaries and the resources. They just knew that Jesus had died and been raised for them to be saved. And yet they were so willing and so bold to be on fire with you, to take you everywhere they went, even as you scattered them through their pain. God, would you draw people to yourself this morning? For those of us who know you, would you recast this pain that we're experiencing in a different light? For us to see this as the opportunity that you're giving us to preach Christ. And then as we see those opportunities, would you give us the boldness and the strength to take them? Because you are the King of kings and you are the Lord of lords and we want everybody to know how awesome you are. So God, help us to make that commitment this morning. Jesus' name.